CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we'll look back at a December to remember. What were some of the craziest moments and why was there so much turbulence? We will also look ahead at 2019 and discuss why we are feeling much better about what's in store with our guest, CLS investment research analysts Michael Haddon and Dustin Dorhout. Plus, we'll interview Michael and Dustin and their colleague, Alec Liu, and talk about the day in the life of an analyst at CLS. Welcome to CLS is the Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start out the new year as we always do with a look back at the markets. 2018 is in the books and it had a crazy finish. It was. December was definitely one to remember. Uh, the worst December since 1931, capping off a year. That was the worst year since 2008. However, you know, we like to work with statistics here. And if you actually look at asset classes and if you look at it in a way where, uh, look how many asset classes are above 5% gain for the year. Um, it may have been the worst year ever for asset allocation. So it was a pretty tough year. Um, it started off all right this year, and uh, so we had to have gains in the books, and it's a pretty nice start. So maybe we're getting a very, very late Santa Claus rally, and I do think the expectations should be pretty strong for this year. Just one thing I like to look at here when we're talking about the market review is just kind of thinking about sentiment. And we are working off some sentiment, sentiment extremes, which would suggest that uh, at least near-term returns for stocks and commodities should be probably above average, and then probably for bonds, the dollar, um, probably below average moving forward. So anyway, off to a good start. Okay, well, in your weekly three that came out last week, you wrote kind of a play-by-play of the wild swings in December. So let's go through a few of the top moments, and it all starts with the yield curve inversion at the beginning of the month. Yeah. Well, in the, the weekly three, it's actually sort of the monthly review, I did have the first section was talking about how crazy December was and how many headlines there were in terms of really sensational price action. And to be perfectly fair, Dustin, who's with us today, actually did that work. So, um, But basically, I'll just give a couple of highlights. The yield curve did invert for the first time in more than a decade early in the month. Uh, but as we went over the course of the month, we had a lot more sort of like these sensational headlines, the worst since then, the, the biggest moves since then. Uh, for instance, like the week of Christmas was like the worst week since the global financial crisis. It was the worst Christmas Eve for the Dow Jones Industrial Index ever. We also had after Christmas, we had one of the biggest up days. Um, the market surged, uh, commodity prices were way up. I mean, it was really a remarkable month. As I said, December, it was the worst December since 1931. Usually December is pretty good, so the fact that it had a loss was pretty exceptional, and then it was a pretty large loss at that. At the end, um, the week ended with all three major indexes were still up, though, uh, about 3% in the last okay. week. Yeah. Well, let's break down uh, one of those key events with our guests. We have two guests on the show today, Michael Haddon, investment research analyst, and Dustin Dorhart, Jr., investment research analyst. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks yeah. for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Okay, so Dustin, in your weekly three from a couple of weeks back, you went into greater detail on one of the key events around that turbulence that we saw in December, and that was the Fed meeting on December 19th. So why did that create so much volatility in the markets? Were investors not expecting the decision to raise rates? Yeah, so this is definitely the most anticipated meeting uh, since Powell took over um, the Federal Reserve with a the decision they kind of concluded in raising rates by 25 basis points. So this was the fourth rate hike uh, of 2018 uh, and the ninth in the current cycle. So basically it raised the Federal Reserve uh, range to 2.25 to 2.5%, which is just short of the 2.5 to 3% um, rates that the Fed deems neutral monetary policy. So what the market was kind of hoping for out of this was for a more dovish uh, language, so kind of more unlikely to take aggressive action uh, on rate hikes given the volatility over the quarter. Um, in reality, what it got was a relatively moderate tone. So the Fed economic outlook kind of softened uh, slightly from September uh, and expectations for further rate increases kind of moderated. Um, but what it did result in uh, was a downward, uh, slight downward movement, I guess, on the dot plot. Um, kind of on that point of of expecting uh, less hikes, uh, 11 out of the 17 members uh, expect two hikes or fewer in 20, uh, 2019. So again, bringing us into that neutral rate territory. Um, and I kind of touched a bit on how many hikes this quarter in cycle, but one of the really cool things as I was kind of looking into this is that it's the one, uh, they, we've had 100 hikes um, that have been had since the 1970s. So it kind of makes you wonder like why the drop in stocks shouldn't the market be pricing these things in. We had a 150 uh, basis point drop in the S&P 500 and even more in the NASDAQ. So uh, following an announcement that's kind of really predictable uh, after having so many, uh, why, why did this happen? So one of the things that I kind of thought was, you know, following the uh, global financial crisis, there was a seven year gap in rate movements. Um, they didn't start again until 2015. So it kind of seemed to me that the market was just a bit rusty uh, in pricing these things in. Uh, here at CLS, we kind of think it's prudent to expect a slowdown in rate hikes. So as always, avoid knee-jerk reactions. Um, and it was certainly key, obviously, throughout December, as Rusty was just kind of talking about. So not no different in the Fed. Right. Okay, well, Michael, I'm going to come to you in a minute. But first, back to you, Rusty. So this Fed meeting explains some of the turbulence in December. But what about the rest of the month? Why was it so volatile? All right. So <clears throat> the reason why I think that December was weak and really the fourth quarter, but again, really December, is first of all, we had a backdrop. A couple different things were in place. So first... As we've talked about a lot on the weighing machine is that the U.S. stock market is is pretty richly valued right now. So it was, it was overvalued. Number two, as we've been talking about here and in earlier podcasts as well, is that the Federal Reserve is normalizing interest rates, meaning that interest rates are rising, cutting it back to normal levels given where we are in the economic cycle. And, and then also another thing is that corporate earnings growth in the U.S. has been like phenomenal, and it's been slowing to just simply really good. And so usually when you kind of get that deceleration, even though the numbers are still in absolute sense good, you're getting a deceleration, which all else being equal, tends to suggest below average market returns. So you have those as the backdrop. And then what you have, which is really exceptional for this, this stage of the year and kind of the whole cycle of the market, is that We've talked about the presidential cycle, sort of the whole election cycle, and usually right after the midterm is one of the kind of the sweet spots of the four years for the stock market. And one of the reasons why is that it, arguably political certainty is at its highest level. Again, certainty, or to rephrase it, uncertainty is at its lowest levels. Well, obviously, at this in this year, it was completely different. Political uncertainty is at a high. There are just so many things going on with the administration. Um, just so many different areas being um, just 
volatile right now that I think that's really kind of created it's kind of that trigger that catalyst for prices to go lower and the negative price action feeds into itself so it kind of becomes a vicious cycle so I think that was sort of the setup and the reason why we had those losses okay so there's also been a few other possible causes cited in the financial media I want to get your thoughts on a few of them yeah um, two to start quants and liquidity yeah, I think those are actually really good points. So first of all, when people talk about quants, they're talking about all the algorithms in the marketplace where so much of the trading activity is now done by investors who are not active making decisions on fundamental factors, but simply just trading off of algorithms in one way or the other. These do tend to be pro-cyclical in nature. So if the market has losses, it might amplify those losses, might make them a little bit larger, and might things move a little bit faster. I don't think they cause the losses, but again, it probably does speed them up a little bit more. The other thing is liquidity. So when we talk about liquidity, that means a, a, a lot of people in the marketplace willing to make a market, whether buying and selling securities. And usually to have an orderly market, you need lots of buyers and sellers. Well, it's kind of a fundamental characteristic of the market in recent years. There's not as much liquidity. There's not as many market makers. There's, there's multiple reasons for that. But again, uh, I think the lack of liquidity doesn't cause the market to go down. But again, like the algorithms, it could help sort of push things around a little bit. And quite frankly, a third thing, which I didn't write about, it's just the holiday season. So you have less people anyway. So you have less volume, you have less liquidity, well, because of that, and just because less market makers, and you have the algorithm. So you have three different reasons which made a lot of these moves just faster and quicker this time of year. Okay, and then a few more that were cited. Stock buybacks, there's a flatter yield curve, and also lower commodity prices. Now, I don't think these were the big reasons why prices are lower, at least not yet. These all, all deserve something to watch moving forward. So first of all, stock buybacks. Stock buybacks have, and that's where the companies buy back their own stock, have been way above average in recent years. And quite frankly, it is a reason why stock market is higher, among the many reasons. Well, buyback started to slow in September of this year, and we've talked about how September was sort of an inflection point in the marketplace where we started seeing international stocks outperform domestic, we started seeing value stocks outperform growth stocks, and a lot of it kind of happened around that time when buyback started to slow as well. Anyway, so that is something to watch moving forward. The second thing is a flatter yield curve. We've talked a lot about that in the podcast. That, again, is talking about the difference between long-term maturity bonds and shorter-term maturity bonds. And usually there's sort of a normal gap between the two, which makes sense because you deserve higher yield because you have more risk in longer maturity bonds. When that curve gets flatter, which means there's less of a difference between the two, uh, that generally is like a signaling mechanism that you could have a recession down the road. doesn't mean it's going to happen right now, but it does sort of kind of set up something that could help create a recession on the road. So that also bears watching. The last thing is lower commodity prices. And the reason why lower commodity prices are something that's important to watch is that it could suggest lower uh, global economic growth. That's the very easy answer. Again, there's a lot of things that go into commodity prices, but that is also something that uh, bears watching moving forward. Okay, well, finally, the scariest sounding one, and this does relate to the yield curve, as you mentioned, possibility that a recession is looming. How likely do you think that is to be true? I, you know, I don't think it, I don't, at this point, I don't think it's likely for this coming year. Of course, anything can change. The economic data has deteriorated towards the end of last year, but it's still in an absolute sense. It's still well above recession levels. Some of the most important indicators still suggest that um, that we're not going to get a recession. There are some clues. The flatter yield curve, again, is uh, kind of a leading indicator. The stock market being lower is also a leading indicator. In fact, the stock market itself, if it actually uh, falls even more, it could actually create kind of in its own way, it could create a recession as opposed to the recession creating a bear market. So. 
That's a long way of saying. I, I, I don't think it's imminent, but it's something to bear watching. I mean, one thing that did come out even from last week is, you know, even, even from late last year, there's a lot of positive things happening in the marketplace. First of all, we had incredibly strong payroll growth that came out last week. Uh, we are seeing some easing efforts uh, from the Chinese central bank, which could be support Chinese growth. Um, I think that uh, the volumes have come back into the marketplace. I think you're seeing a lot more emotional stability, and I think those are reasons why the market is sort of stabilized and uh, and should do better moving forward, despite the fact that some people are trying to throw up a recession scare right now. Okay. Well, we've run through the bad stuff. Now, with all this said, that you wrote in your monthly review that you're actually more optimistic about market returns in 2019 and beyond. So what are you basing that on? Well, um, I mean, one is I was talking about how political uncertainty is really, really high right now. And I do think that that will dissipate it. it. It usually does. And I think that the administration likes to tout the stock market as sort of a validator of their policies. So I think all else being equal, I think the administration will probably want to alleviate some of that political uncertainty as well. The other thing which I mentioned earlier is that investor sentiment just reached some extremely negative levels. And usually when investor sentiment gets so negative like that, it's it's pretty amazing to see what the market does in the months afterwards. And generally, it's the market is up. And not only is it up, but it's up by a lot more than usual. So I think those are two big factors why we're more positive coming into the year. So is now actually a good time to buy into the market? Well, that's a good question. Actually, another thing that's why I think it always is a good time to buy in the market, but particularly when stocks are on sale. And even though we weren't quite 20% off, we were basically 20% off. And a couple things to remember here. Well, first of all, it's just sort of that eternal message that investors should expect volatility. They should expect to see corrections. They should expect to see losses of 5, 10, 15, 20% or more in the market over time. And just for a frame of reference, it's kind of easy to remember, is that a 20% loss in the marketplace happens about every three years. And quite frankly, we haven't seen one officially in over 10 at this point. Uh, you should see 15% losses every two years. You should see a 10% loss every one year. And you should see a 5% loss like four times a year or uh, maybe it's three times a year, whatever. You should see it multiple times within a year. And usually when the market drops after all those, again, particularly when the market's down 20%, is that moving forward, uh, the chances of a positive gain in the marketplace are well above average. And usually it's like 75% of the time. I think it's even closer to 90% when you have a drawdown like that. And the other thing is you get above average double-digit returns moving forward in the following year, three years, and five years. So all else being equal, if you knew nothing else, if you only knew prices were down 20%, it's a time to buy, not to sell. Uh, so, Michael, you addressed a uh, similar point in your section of the Weekly 3. Um, because the stock market has had such a rough year, investors who stayed in cash fared pretty well in 2018. But to take those results and sit on the sidelines until the market looks better or time your way in and out is not a great idea for investors. So why not? Yeah, well, you're right about cash, Robin. And it was really the first time since the global financial crisis that you're actually paid something to be in cash. And with the tough year in the equity markets, as we've kind of discussed, and rising rates hurting bonds as well, cash actually outperformed both bonds and equities in 2018. And that's just the 12th time since 1928 and the first time since 1994 that cash has been the top performer. And so these market timers might say this is, you know, you could have been able to see this coming. 2017 was such a tremendous year, positive returns every month, uh, valuations were at a high uh, maybe it was to be expected that we were going to have a bad year. But if you look back at January of 2018, um, you know, it would have been hard to sit out on the sidelines with, you know, both domestic and international markets up over 7% and 
uh, emerging markets up almost 10% through the first uh, three to four weeks of January last year. And so, you know, even if you did call 2018 right and you moved to cash, you know, now what? There's always that you have to get back into the markets at some point. And so if we're looking back at history, when cash has outperformed, uh, you see some interesting things. And it's pretty similar to market history as a whole. There's a wide variance in the next 12 months performance, anywhere from down 43% to up 37%. But if we look at the averages, the market's typically up about 10%, and it's positive 75% of the time. And so, again, it comes back to, you know, if you're going to try and time the markets, you might have called it right to get out in 2018, but when's your time to re-enter? Uh, and that's what makes market timing so extremely difficult, is having to make the call on when to get out and when to get back in. And because of this difficulty, you know, at CLS, we don't believe in market timing, and uh, we don't think that's the way to play the markets, because we know the long trends of uh, market performance is typically positive, um, and so we stick with that with our long-term performance. Right on. All right, well, let's end this conversation with some lessons learned. It was a tough but interesting year. And as always, the market is a great teacher and it taught us some great good lessons in 2018. Rusty, you were thinking about this while you were snowboarding with your kids in Colorado over the holidays. So first things first, are you all in one piece after that? Yeah, so, yeah, thanks for bringing up the snowboarding part. I, You know, I had to write <laughs> something, so I was uh, I was actually on holiday when I had to write it, so I might as well write about my snowboarding. The uh, First of all, it was a great snowboarding trip. We were in Steamboat Springs, tons of powder. It was phenomenal. I think it was some of the best snowboarding I've ever done. I've been snowboarding since the early 90s. I think it's just the powder. It makes you really super confident. My kids and I were all at the same level, so we were together the whole time. I did actually, on my second day, uh, riding through the trees, I did run into a tree, sort of, kind of. And nice. so it is It is actually two weeks later, and I still have bruises to prove it. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. Okay, so talk about the market lessons that you were thinking about while you were, I'm going to say this right, shredding the gnar, right? Uh, there you go. That's right. Well, you know what? I It's just trying to always like draw like some outside thing to investing. But it's um, basically, hey, just stay balanced and stay the course. And despite the bumps and falls, uh, markets will go up over time. And, of course, the markets do allow investors to participate in the relentlessly inevitable long-term global economic growth. You know, I, as I always think that, you know, one, I think a really simple phrase to think about the markets, and it sounds really simple, but you could really actually break it down and it really captures what the markets do. It's like, hey, markets go up, they go down, and then they go back up again. And that really captures it. It's the markets go up over time, but they're going to have down periods, and that's just a price you got to pay. Right. Good note to end on. Dustin, Michael, please stick around because we're heading to the final portion of the show, which is Rusty's Q&A, and you are up, along with your colleague, Alec Alou, Junior Investment Research Analyst. Alec, good to have you on the show. Thanks. It's it's good to be here. All right. Rusty, take it away. I will take it away, Robin. Thanks. All right, so guys, this should be a lot of fun. So we want to find out what it's like to be a research analyst at CLS Investments. So um, we have a whole bunch of questions here, but first of all, each of you, uh, just describe, you know, basically to the listeners who you are, what you do, and how did you get to CLS? However you want to take it. Who's going first? Yeah, I can start All off. right, Michael. Um, Michael Haddon, um, investment research analyst here at CLS. I've been here a little over a year now. Um, I guess how I got here, I uh, went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, majored in finance and accounting. I um, always kind of was interested in investments, so I did the CFA track while at university um, and then was just kind of looking around for analyst jobs and saw the posting at CLS and uh, you know managed to be a good fit. Uh, kind of some of the top things I do here, uh, basically I've 
just an analyst on kind of a variety of strategies. So um, obviously the biggest one is our growth and income mutual fund. I serve as the analyst on that as well as our master manager, high net worth accounts, our managed income strategy, our Santander relationship, um, and enhanced fixed income as well as some other things. I also serve on the international equity and alternatives base teams. Right, so I know we've talked about those on the weighing machine in the past, but that's our broad asset class expert teams. So kind of our deeper dives into research, I focus on international and alternatives. I also serve on our Gibbs committee, Gibbs committee. So, um, you know, as we get verified by Gibbs each year, um, kind of working with our outside verification on that. And again, the Gibbs kind of is a, it's describe Gibbs a little bit more. So why, why is that so special? Because not every firm does that in terms of their performance. Right. It, um, you know, there's just different standards you follow as we, um, you know, display our performance to the outside, um, just ensuring that, um, you know, your performance numbers are accurate and, um, you know, outside investors or other firms can, um, you know, take your performance numbers with confidence. Yeah. I mean, on the GIPS, that's a really good point because everybody reports numbers, but in the GIPS numbers, you have to do a lot of additional work. You have to pay money to basically ensure that these numbers are correct. And again, not every firm does that. So right. cool. Cool. Um, I'll go next, I guess. So I'm Dustin Dorhout, a junior investment research analyst. Um, so I guess kind of going as far back, uh, I was born in a small town in Iowa uh, where my family owned a cattle equipment business. And so that kind of was the foundation for uh, me kind of, I guess, liking the idea of business. And so that kind of carried over all the way for when I went to Creighton. I knew I wanted to um, go into finance, but uh, they make it pretty easy to double major. And I, I wasn't exactly sure what to go into. And so I ended up pairing that with economics, which really kind of helped me decide the type of finance uh, that I wanted to go into. Um, and so eventually I got a, uh, I guess, an internship uh, working for Orion, uh, one of the sister companies here at uh, Northstar. And so um, I basically got a chance to see CLS, get an opinion on it, um, you know, and hear all the great things that they were doing. So as I kind of came to the conclusion of, of what I wanted to be doing, uh, you know, CLS, I saw the, I saw a posting for the job and decided to, you know, definitely give it a try, especially after everything I heard. And um, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to get a job here. So kind of as far as what I do, um, uh, I guess not to start off too generically, but, you know, it's every day is really different, especially kind of given the team effort we use here at CLS. Tasks can really come from, you know, any different direction and go any different direction. Um, but some of the core things that I do, uh, I serve as an analyst on our uh, global diversified equity team, um, as well as an analyst on our ESG fund team, where uh, I get a chance to work closely with my manager, Costa Edis, on um, kind of an exciting and up-and-coming space in the investment industry. Uh, additionally, I help with the domestic equity base team. Uh, Michael kind of described what, what the base team is. Um, and so in all these, it's kind of just helping, you know, find attractive areas in the market, you know, to deploy the capital and, and to also ensure that the portfolios are always allocated the way we find, you know, most optimal given given the fund's objectives. So, uh yeah, that's, I guess, what I do. You know, I seriously, I do let you guys go home sometimes. You guys are able to leave before midnight, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, good. Sometimes. <laughs> Alec, you're up. All right, uh, I'm Alec Liu. I grew up in L.A. I went to school at the University of Chicago. I actually did political science, uh, but I was always interested in money, so here I am in Omaha. I actually found CLS through a referral from a fellow student of mine, and, you know, who just really raved about the intellectual curiosity, you know, innovation and collaboration on the team. And I thought CLS would be a great place to start my career in finance. And One of our old interns. That's right. That's who it was. Right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Noah Martinez. That's Shout out right. to him as Absolutely. well. 
And, you know, I just think uh, I've been right so far, uh, just given all the great qualities of CLS. I'm primarily an analyst that uh, whose work revolves around risk and working closely with our uh, resident quant associate, PM Jackson. Uh, just just making sure that all of our models properly reflect the relative market risk at any given time. Um, like my fellow analysts, my work on base primarily revolves around uh, the fixed income space. And I work very closely with Mark Pfeffer and Joe Joe Smith on on these areas. Yeah. And again, base, just for the listeners, that's what we call broad asset class. Expert. Expert. I was trying to think about that ETF. <laughs> so obviously there's thousands of ETFs and hundreds of asset classes, and we kind of break it down into four different buckets, which we call base teams, domestic equities, international equities, fixed income, and all the rest, which is really alternatives and commodities. So both these guys talked about that. It's a really important part of how we actually do a lot of our bottom-up security selection, which quite frankly, has been very strong for us, and the base teams is a big reason for it. Hey, one thing before I get some other questions here, I'm sorry, did you have more, Alec? That was it, right? I just just realized I saw you guys sitting here. So another unique thing here is Alec is from L.A. and a big LA, L.A. Rams fan. And, of course, we got Dustin, <laughs> who is able to participate in Dallas Cowboys season tickets. who goes to a bunch of Cowboys games. So have you guys been talking trash talk yet? Not yet. I was going to say, we've actually been pretty civil throughout the course because the team's you know, had never met. We faced the Saints, you know, one of the better teams. Uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm happy to be playing L.A. <laughs> I like it. Well, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of trash talk in the office. All right, I'm going to uh, have a couple questions here. So, Dustin, you mentioned your manager. So I'm going to throw a question at all three of you guys. One thing that's unique is each of you report to a different portfolio manager here at CLS. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to either get yourself in trouble or score some points. So who is your manager and describe their managerial style? Yeah, uh, my manager is Grant Engelbart. Um, I guess his style, he's very hands-off, which I can appreciate. Um, you know, he lets me really run with ideas that I have. Um, you know, if he does give me a task, he doesn't, um, you know, micromanager. Really lets me just kind of go off and do research into it and kind of report back to him. And one thing I really like about Grant as well is he still really likes to do analyst work and his own analysis. So a lot of times, you know, we may both be looking at something at the same time, um, you know, and then we come back together and kind of compare our conclusions. Uh, also just a great guy to bounce ideas off of, um, you know, different strategies we're looking at. Um, we don't overlap a whole ton, which is also kind of unique because I get to see the strategies he's working on that I'm not the analyst on, um, you know, and just kind of high level and in investment ideas or, you know, areas of the market that we find attractive. Um, and then as well, he, he started, you know, as, uh, as an analyst at CLS and has worked his way up to portfolio manager. So just as a mentor, um, you know, following the same path that he did uh, has been really helpful for me as I get started. Okay, I don't think you're in trouble. So, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Um, uh, College East Coast, yeah, if I end up in trouble, but hopefully not. Um, so, yeah, I, my manager is Coasty Edis. Um, so he's been really great to work under and definitely served as an invaluable resource, you know, in my ability to learn quickly in intelligy uh, since I started, I guess it was June. So I um, have a lot of face time with him, which has been great. So, uh, you know, we work closely, but kind of like mentioned uh, uh Michael mentioned about Grant, um, he kind of lets my imagination run, um, and he does a good job finding the balance between that, you know, the hands-off side, and also ensuring efficiency out of me and, you know, making sure that I'm constantly working to be better. Um, and so that's been really great. Uh, we meet 
kind of every Monday to go over goals and objectives for the week and, and that kind of sets us off and then we create dialogue uh, from there. And so as, as far as investing styles and uh, you guys can correct me if you think otherwise, but Kosti is a big value guy and, and is always kind of looking for, you know, the biggest the biggest value play, the biggest bang for your buck in the markets and, you know, trying to, and, you know, with conversations with him and I, it's, it's kind of trying to figure out uh, how his current thinking may be wrong or my current thinking may be wrong. And uh, so it works out really well because, um, you know, we, we were always talking through things and seeing where we could be uh, wrong. And I love to play devil's advocate. So it, it kind of that balance with him and I uh, really, really works well. And, and Kosha likes to do that too. So you guys must have great conversations. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's definitely never ending, well, which is always fun. But um, kind of th- kind of touching on the mentorship part as well, uh, I kind of, I had always said this. Kosha gave me an article that was uh, kind of about finding uh, value in what you do and in, in your career. So I've always been really fortunate that not only just on the investment side, you know, he's been a mentor, but also on the other side of of kind of like guiding your future path and making sure that you're doing the things that are that are most optimal and how you want to uh, approach your long term career. So it's it's really helpful on both both ends of the spectrum. So it's great. All right, Alec, you're up. All right. Uh, I report directly to Joe Smith and for anyone who's ever listened to or spoken with Joe. He's very, he's very quant, he's very data-driven, and he, you know, he won't make, he won't make any decision without seeing the relevant data first. But the thing is, you know, he, even though he's a quant, he's very passionate, so he's not like a yes. robot, you know. Well, he's so. passionate about the numbers. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go, no worries. Go right um, you know, I, I think a lot of that has, has rubbed off on me. I mean, any of his requests have to, it, it starts off with making sure that the data integrity is correct and, you know biggest part is definitely not screwing up and if you do screw up don't screw up twice the same way yeah and uh so mark pfeffer isn't isn't my direct manager but i work very closely with him uh to help run our money market fund yeah and you know i I think i wouldn't say they're polar opposites but their their approach to investing is is very different Mm -hmm. and i think being exposed to you know mark was very old school uh, gut feeling, you know, been around a long time, can speak to a lot of historical trends and things like that, you know, definitely helps shape a long-term perspective for me. And working with Joe just makes sure, just makes makes me feel like I need to, you know, make sure everything's correct as well. But, you know, having that backdrop to work off of with Mark Pfeffer is, you know, I think tremendous to my development. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up, Mark. I was going to ask you about that, so you anticipated my <laughs> question. So Chief Investment Strategist Mark Pfeffer, uh, obviously he's watching the screens every day. He's been managing money for over three decades, so right. just the fact he's got a great market touch, that's great. All right, so you guys get to work with some really cool investment management research tools as well. We should just talk about that real fast. We've got like three different tools we can talk about. Uh, let's just, just a jump ball. Who wants to grab a tool and describe what it is and how we use it? Yeah, uh, I guess I can grab FactSet. Uh, so we have, um, you know, access to FactSet and it's, all three tools are extremely powerful, but, um, you know, I, I probably know very s- surface level. I do a lot of things in FactSet and, um, you know, always learning more and more ways to utilize the tool. Uh, a couple of the big ways that we utilize it is, um, it's two-factor rinse and attribution. So, um, you know, when we're looking at attribution on our Mutual funds, which are actually fund fund of funds uh, holding all ETFs, uh, facts that allows us to go down to the individual security level, which is super insightful for us when we want to look at, you know, where we're really driving our um, performance within the funds. So we we look at, um, you know, by sector, by region, and by across the market cap spectrum. And like I said, we're able to dive down to, um, you know, the ETF and the individual securities that the ETFs are holding to really give us a picture of 
you know, how our funds, um, you know, where we have exposure to the market and, you know, what's really driving performance. And then the other thing uh, where we really utilize facts is within its charting. So as a big, uh, you know, kind of value shop and always looking at valuations, we're able to put together uh, different what we call chart packs, uh, just looking at relative valuations, um, as well as some fundamentals, uh, you know, some some growth trends, uh, correlations with the market. So, uh, you know, being able to throw in uh, different securities, take a look at, um, you know, how it's doing relative to, uh, you know, an index or a different fund. Uh, you know, they always say a picture's worth a thousand words. So I really think, you know, pulling those charts really gives you a good idea of attractive areas of the market. So I guess that's a couple ways that we really utilize Faxit. You know, you just gave a pretty good explanation for it. And as you mentioned earlier, you just scratched the surface and does so hmm. much for us. Yep. By the way, on all these tools, again, we spend a lot of money on it. We, um, I mean, it's 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 under $400,000 a year, but we do spend a lot on tools. Dustin, what tool do you want yeah, to talk so about? I'll, I'll go with Morningstar Direct. Um, you know, like you guys were saying, we have so many tools, and especially being you know new to a lot of them. I, I guess I toyed with Bloomberg a little bit before, but you know Morningstar Direct and Factset were certainly new to me. Um, and so with Morningstar Direct, uh, we use it for a number a number of different things, and, and its competitive advantage is mainly its endless amount of data. So you can export it and play with it to your you know own heart's content, and it empowers the analyst to use his imagination to create uh, various forms of research. So you know anytime that we kind of uh, go deep into something or uh, do a deep dive, a lot of the data is always pulled from there. Um, we use it as well for a lot of the monthly reports to kind of show um, where we are and whether that's pulling the data and utilizing that to create our own reports or, you know, some of the things inside of it, such as, you know, we hold these ETFs, uh, what, what is exactly inside of them and, and to what extent across all of our portfolios. So there's really, there's a lot of, of benefits in Morningstar that, again, I won't even begin to scratch the surface. Um, uh, but yeah, so I guess to kind of give an example, um, you know, we're kind of digging really deep into that ESG space, trying to figure out the strengths of the research and, you know, how we can utilize it in various portfolios. But especially as we see with kind of some of the different ETF tickers, uh, uh, especially in the ESG space, we have to not take that, at, you know, their names at face value. And so it's important to see, okay, what is your process and what's the style within it? And, um, and it's really good because how we view it, ESG is, is something that we're constantly defining. It's, it's really broad in the industry. And so uh, we're trying to figure out how to best use it in portfolios. And so, you know, that's where I can pull all the data. And, you know, they work really closely with a firm called Sustainalytics, um, you know, which they bought, I believe, a 40% stake in. And so we kind of get a lot of the benefits out of that. And that basically has a bunch of ESG data and um, on the company level. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really good it's a really good tool that, that we use. And uh, I probably use in every single project. But yeah, so cool. Again, we use Morningstar for so much stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah, I can't even begin to scratch the surface. I know, exactly. Well, Bloomberg is another big tool we have, and it does everything as well, but it's really known for its fixed income capabilities, and obviously you do a lot of fixed income. Alec? Yeah, uh, Bloomberg has a couple components for myself personally. I think uh, communication within the terminal itself is huge, You know, not only to talk to Mark Pfeffer on a daily basis, but also just having access to all the Bloomberg intelligence analysts that are available and, you know, because you are paying so much for this tool, um, I think they basically have to talk to you and answer any questions that you have, which is, which is very helpful if, you know, just in case our own analysis, you know, our own digging doesn't yield enough results for us to comment on confidently, we can always rely on, you know, some of these experts to plug in the gaps, so to speak. And yeah, uh, it's fixed income data is very strong, you know, from 
different databases like Morningstar, you know, there might be there might be gaps, you know, in in the data itself. But Bloomberg, you know, because of virtue of being around for so long and just having so many niches and I guess connections, uh, really has a complete profile of you know even bonds down to the individual company level and different issuance. So I think uh, that's very helpful. Another aspect of Bloomberg is its uh, risk modeling uh, in terms of factor investing, which Joe requests a lot. And, you know, I've definitely learned a lot trying to run these reports for him and to interpret them. Uh, They do it from a holding standpoint, essentially. And it just it spits out a very clean uh, set of numbers that you can look at to compare, you know, definitely to our own internal models as well, just to make sure that, you know, either... Obviously, we want to we want to be doing our models correctly, but also to take it just to take advantage of their of their process to look at any new securities ETFs that may have launched, and just uh, just to complete our perspective around the industry. Yeah, all of them are powerful tools. We do get this question a lot from advisors, and also when people come in and do professional due diligence on us, they ask us about our tools. One other tool to mention um, is something called Ned Davis Research. Um, used it for years. Ned Davis, uh, which is cool about Ned Davis, is that it actually connects the dots between a lot of economic data series and other market stuff. And it connects the dot in the sense, like, what does it really mean for the stock market? At least, what has it meant for the stock market historically? And a lot of times when we read the financial media, people will connect dots. But if you actually go to Ned Davis, you'll see that um, what you just heard in the financial press, for instance, is wrong. And it's not really what happens historically. And so anyway, Ned Davis is an incredible um, educational tool. And we use it, obviously, in some of our marketing pieces as well. All right. So a couple more questions, guys. All of you are in something called the CFA program. What level are each of you at? And what is a CFA program? I'm just another jump yeah, ball. So, uh, I mean, I guess I'm. I just passed uh, the the first level, um, which I took in June, and so I'll be moving on to level two, which I'm going to go ahead and take next June. Um, yeah. So it, I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of describe, uh, you know, what the CFA is and, and why it's kind of important to, to CLS. So for one, it kind of ensures that we maintain the adequate knowledge, you know, and the skills to to implement kind of the best processes across all of our portfolios. So you know, to best grow our clients' wealth. Uh, secondly, it shows the current and prospective advisors, you know, firms we work closely with and, and even competitors that the investment team at CLS like does have the skills necessary to compete and excel, um, you know, in the, in the complex and evolving world of investing. So we definitely like to pride ourselves on being ahead. And so as I kind of like to always go to what the website says, it, it says the charters hold, uh, charter holders enjoy a mark of distinction throughout the world. So um, I think this is a really important thing uh, for CLS, especially being in the Midwest and, you know, in a business setting where we compete against some of the top firms in the nation, located in some of the largest financial hubs, you know, not to mention in an industry that we can get a bad rep for greediness at the expense of the client. It's, it's pretty refreshing to be able to emphasize that we have a, a recognizable commitment to ethics and professionalism, you know, as well as the, uh, I guess, necessary investment fluency really to get the job done right. So it's kind of my take on the CFA and um, some of the reasons that I find it important and, and Rusty and the team has, has, has told me as well. So. All right. What level you got, you guys at? Yeah, uh, I uh, sitting for level three this year. Level three candidate. So hopefully, um, there's yeah. only three. So if yeah, you make it, you'll see a face soon. This one out and, uh, you know, earn my charter soon enough. You. Yeah, <laughs> probably need it. Don't want to curse you there. And Alec. Uh, well, I just finished sitting for the December level one, but you know, uh, I guess I'm a little. 
Lesk Reset Verse because the results don't come out to the 22nd. But here I am studying for level two, so there you go. Actually, gonna Confidence. gonna you know really knock on wood here just to, just just to just to make sure that I actually pass and can move on. Just to show how hard the CFA is, what are the pass rates again for these tests? Maybe I'm not I'm not sure if I'm fully correct, but I know they're always below about 43 percent, generally around 40 percent for each of the levels. Um, especially as you move on, you know, Michael's in the third level, so as that becomes 40 percent, it's 40 percent of the people that already had you know what it took to pass the first level, and you know, so so on and so forth. So definitely a tougher test. I remember when I took the CFA in Boston many years ago, when I would take the CFA prep classes, I would be in a room full of 100 people, and it was like really some of the best and the brightest in Boston. And you look around and think, like, two-thirds of these people are going to fail. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little intimidating. Yeah, but yeah. All right, last question here, and this is a fun one. All right, all of you guys read a lot. All of you guys listen to podcasts a lot. Do you have a book and podcast recommendation for the listeners? What's been really cool that you've listened or read to lately? Yeah, I guess I can start that off. Uh, I guess just top of mind right now, I'm reading Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Uh Super interesting. She's a professional poker player, but kind of applies that to different decision making and including the financial markets. And, you know, I think Joe Smith has actually maybe talked about it on this podcast before, but essentially one of her biggest things is resulting. And, you know, you can't take, um, you know, the result of an outcome and, um, you know, have it affect your process or, um, you know, affect the way you think about. Uh, a decision that was made if you took all the right steps and have a sound process uh, you know when when there's probabilities involved it might not always work out for the better but uh, you know trusting that process and um, you know giving yourself the best chance for success is what really should matter and you yeah know, it's called that's thinking and bets by Annie Dukes right Annie I've Dukes. heard I've yep. heard good things about mm-hmm. it yep. yeah it's a great book podcast uh, you know, I, I really yeah. enjoy Meb, Matt Baver's podcast. Oh, yeah. um, a weighing machine guest a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, he always has good guests on there. Uh, interesting guy to listen to. Uh, you know, his firm issues ETF, so it's always interesting as well. But Again, that's Meb Faber, F-A-B-E-R. Yeah, the Meb Faber yeah, show. exactly, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so um, I guess I'll go ahead and start off with a book. And, you know, I, one of the cool things about working here that, uh, I've always been a big fan of is just the fact that people are always suggesting new books and podcasts uh, like on, on a daily basis. So I actually on this one went back to one that I read in college, uh, but it was my junior year, and it was called it was by Roger Lowenstein called America's Bank, and it's the epic struggle to create the Federal Reserve. So you know one of the things that we're big on here is kind of history. Um, you know obviously you have to understand the past to to you know at least potentially see what's coming in the future or understand risk to a certain extent. And, um, I, I liked reading through it because to really understand the Federal Reserve, people have a lot of opinions on what they do and what they're supposed to do and you know why they why they're here and if they should be. And this book kind of goes through and gives you a really good, you know, full understanding of like what it is. And it's it's pretty non-biased. Uh, and it's just it's just the history of it. So I went back and read that. It's you know especially reading it junior year of college. It's a little bit more applicable now, um, being being in college. So or being out of college. So uh, as far as the podcast, this is one that actually Rusty. Uh, told me about it, but it's called Conversations with Tyler. So um, I guess one of the most recent ones that I really enjoyed was by Daniel Kahneman on kind of cutting through the noise. So uh, it was, you know, you hear all these things and you're getting flooded with information. You know, we've talked about it numerous times in articles and even even here, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. And so how do you how do you know what to actually lis- look for and listen to? So both of those were extremely interesting. Cool. Those good ones. That was a good podcast, too. I listened to it. It was a great one. And obviously the author of your book, too, is very well known for a lot of good books. Oh, yeah, yep. absolutely. Awesome. 
Uh, well, I sh actually have two books to kind of put out there today. The first one is Boyd uh, by Robert Corum, oh, yeah. who, uh, which I actually got in our annual White Elephant book, yeah. book exchange. Yeah, we so, do a book exchange every December here with the research team. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's a biography. You, you know, it's not necessarily like a technical book telling you how you should you should think or anything. But I think the biggest thing about books is that you can you can take you know, especially these people's experiences, and just just apply it to what what you need, you need to do. And in and in our case, it's investing. So out of this, I got a really really detailed look at the UDA cycle. You know, the observe, orient, decide, act. But pairing that with something else that I'm currently reading, which is Thinking Fast and Slow, a uh, classic uh, psychological yeah. analysis by Daniel Kahneman as well, you know, I, I think it really just provided me the tools to create a new sort of checklist to go through when, you know, I'm making decisions. So, you know, pairing uh, this OODA loop together with, you know, the fact that that I need to recognize that I have an intuitive system as well as a, you know, a lazy system, but that is definitely more strategic uh, in nature. You know, I think recognizing that and applying it in, especially investing and decision-making, I, I think, I think it's a uh, super important. Uh, good yeah. stuff. Podcast. Podcast. You I need two books. That's cool. Right. Ex yeah, exactly. exactly. I thought that was substitute go. for the right. fact that. <laughs> well, Robin, so what do you think? Your reading list has now been enhanced. What do you think? It has, and I just want to add that I'm sure you all listen to CLS as the Weighing Machine as a regular podcast. Oh, uh, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, good discussion. That is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Stay balanced. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS as the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.